In a bit of progress for regular order, the House last week managed to pass its version of the National Defense Authorization Act, and members will get down to the 2023 spending bills this week. We get the latest from WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller, and the House has a pretty good unbroken record here, don't they? That's right. It's kind of like a baseball record, right? Keeping a 61-year streak going on passing the NDAA every year. It's the one thing that members of Congress always point to because they know they don't approve a lot of other things. Things on time. But at any rate, they did do that last week, close to $840 billion. As always is the case, it went through a huge amendment process. Just to highlight some of the things that went through and did not go through, there was a uh, proposal by uh, liberal members of the Democratic Party to try to cut it by $100 billion. That was rejected. The one headline, of course, for a lot of people is the pay raise, 4.6% pay raise for military personnel. That would, of course, be the largest pay hike in about 20 years. So that's a huge one there. And then among the many other amendments that were included in this is one from Virginia Congressman Jerry Connolly. That would ban what's known as Schedule F that was adopted by former President Trump to give agencies a new class of accepted service. The idea under the previous administration was that it would give agencies more flexibility. A lot of Democrats had some problems with that. So that was actually included and passed within the NDAA. We'll see what happens when it gets to the Senate. But this would basically go back to what it was before with five accepted services scheduled that had previously been in place. And then one interesting thing related to D.C., an amendment that uh, D.C. Delegate Eleanor Holmes Norton has been trying to get in for a long time, which would give the D.C. mayor the power to deploy the National Guard during an emergency. Obviously, that got a lot of attention because of the delays related to the National Guard responding to January 6th. So that is included in the big defense bill, but we'll have to see what happens and whether Senate Republicans, as they can, uh, lift that language out of the final bill. I wonder if Mayor Bowser will get a special red phone right to the National Guard. (laughs) She would like one. She's definitely supportive of this measure, and we'll see what happens. All right. So now, of course, as you mentioned, the Senate has to do its thing on the NDAA. And they've had hearings. They've had markups. Are they close? They are not really very close. As usual, the Senate is kind of running behind the House on this issue. Uh, We'll have to see what happens. Um, They haven't scheduled a vote yet, but when they do, it'll probably get approved, obviously, with some changes. And then, of course, it goes to conference committee, and that's where we'll we'll see whether some of these things uh, stick around or not. But uh, regarding the Senate, the ongoing drama with uh, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin continues. Late last week, he basically announced that he was going to nix key provisions of what's been called the Scaled Back, Build Back Better bill. Uh, a Capitol Hill colleague of mine has called it the Build Back Never bill because it just does not seem like it's ever going to get to the finish line. So So that complicates a lot of budget matters as well. So Senate, again, running behind, as often is the case. All right. And switching gears here a little bit, there is some gambit by the TSA administrator, Transportation Security Administration. He wants to get some statutory backing for paying the TSA line agents more money. That's right. As you know, there's been a huge problem with turnover at the TSA. Basically, in an average year, Transportation Security Administration says it has about a 20% turnover. Uh, So the head of the TSA, David Petoskey, told the Senate Commerce, Science, and Transportation Committee last week that he's committed to pay equity for TSA screeners. He says that they need to get about 10% more screeners. They have been doing a lot of things to try to get retention among TSA workers because of this turnover problem. Petoskey says that 
that the TSA has introduced all kinds of incentives. They've got recruiting bonuses, cost of living increases. Uh, they've even increased uh, bonuses for people during the summer. They're just trying to fill all these slots. And then all of this is happening as the airlines are struggling to deal with the crowded planes that are out there again now because of different things that have happened related to the pandemic. So a lot of things happening uh, in this federal agency as well as in the aviation industry. We're speaking with WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. And I was curious, the best places to work in the federal government rankings came out last week, and there's always a lot of hullabaloo about that in the executive branch. Does Congress look at that, and do they they take it into account? They do, and lawmakers always look at what some of these agencies are doing or not doing. Uh, Some of them, as you know, kind of defend the agencies a little bit more than others, and others are basically have their blades out and are ready to criticize the agencies, and they can use these ratings to kind of build their case one way or the other. I think it is interesting that, as you all have reported at Federal News Network, that the fact that these numbers have gone down, um, and it's probably not all that surprising given all the uncertainty about what was happening with the pandemic, how much people were going to actually get back into the office, or whether they were going to continue to telework. So I thought it was interesting that, um, for example, the General Services Administration, even though it slightly went down, it actually went up basically because other mid-sized agencies did not do as well. Um, that number for the Federal Trade Commission dropping uh, almost 25 percentage points. That's got to be a tough one for that agency. But again, a lot of these agencies, as you've reported, uh, just still kind of trying to find their way, uh, getting back to where they would normally be. And as usual, kind of like uh, Alabama and college football, NASA continues to be (laughs) number one for what? It's been a decade now. Yes, indeed, it has. Well, they've got some great telescopes and some great missions ahead. They got a lot of good publicity last week, that's for sure. All right. And uh, finally, how are things on the back of Capitol Hill where the Supreme Court is? Last summer, and I guess for about a year, we've been dealing with Capitol fencing. Now there's the Supreme Court fencing, and people are wondering what the future of that is. Yeah, it's really interesting because you have much more visitors coming into the uh, Capitol area complex now, and a lot of people you get are really curious about what's happening with the Supreme Court fencing, that non-scalable fence that's been up. Of course, we knew it was going to go up uh, in the weeks ahead of the uh, Roe versus Wade decision, and we thought that it would stay up for a little while longer. But now it's kind of unclear about how long it's going to stay. And you do get a lot of people from across the country who are coming to visit here will ask you, how long is this going to be up? And no one really knows. The other thing that's interesting, too, is I have noticed this uh, just because I come into the Capitol every every day. The bike racks that sometimes go up when there's a major event now seem to be more of a standard fixture around the Capitol. Uh, For example, I came in late last week and there was a news conference taking place outside the House side where they often hold news conferences and all of it was um, blocked off. So I think there have definitely been some changes in security protocols. The uh, biking uh, racks are just all the way around the Capitol complex now. Uh, Most of the time, which was not the case in recent months before this. So uh, we'll have to see what happens uh, when they get back in the fall or if there's going to be any change over the summer. Uh, You know, when you talk to Capitol Police officers, they're not really sure what's going to happen. Of course, they're just following orders and trying to get people to go where they're supposed to go. But I find it uh, very interesting, the fact that you have so many more people now visiting around the Capitol. And they can still get around the Capitol much closer than they uh, could, obviously, after January 6th. 
but there's still definitely a tighter feel around Capitol Hill now. Yeah, that used to be such a nice area to kind of wander around, especially on weekends. And now it's become sort of a war zone among conflicting protest groups. Right. There was a time, as you know, that the, people would be surprised when they'd come in, you know, say from Kansas or Ohio, where, wherever they're from, and they could get right up to the Capitol steps, basically. And now it takes a little bit more to figure out where they're going. And then, of course, you know, you're looking at a map if you're from out of town and you're all of a sudden on one side of the Capitol, but you see these either fencing or bike racks and you got to kind of figure out where you're going to go. So it's definitely a different feel around Capitol Hill now. Mitchell Miller is Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. As always, thanks so much. You bet. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy. His name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her. I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think, my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, at, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that 
that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards, two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of the Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi historical to current, uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, 
Think twice before sending money through an app or online. Ladies and gentlemen, we need you. The Benevolent and Protective Order of Elks is looking for you to help support veterans, help with youth scholarships, and be a force in your community. Being a member of the Elks is where you can do all this and much more. We are 31 lodges strong across the state of Iowa. Help pass on our principles of charity, justice, brotherly love, and fidelity. If interested, go to elks.org and use the lodge locator to find a lodge near you. Elks care. Elks share. Brought to you by the Iowa Elks Association.